Welcome back to another episode of Quill Etc. Today I'm with David Limerick. David is a member of the Victorian Libertarian Party, formerly known as the Liberal Democrats, and in 2018 he was elected to the Victorian Parliament. I had the pleasure of meeting David at our Quillet Social in Melbourne a few months ago, and while I'm not a libertarian as such, I find myself agreeing with what a lot of David has to say. In this episode, we cover a number of topics from legalizing drugs and nuclear energy to the welfare state and the recent election of Javier Millet in Argentina. But first up, we discuss the medicalization of children with gender dysphoria, an issue that Quillette has been covering for years, despite it receiving little discussion in the halls of parliament. David Limerick is an exception to the rule. He's one of the only Aussie politicians to take a stand on this important issue. I hope you enjoy this episode and without much further ado, let's get into it. I first came across this topic when a bill called the Change and Suppression Bill was passed through Parliament. And so we wanted to engage heavily on it and we came across some of the concepts of gender affirming care, right? And so what this bill does and what is now law in Victoria is it only allows affirmation of people when they're having therapy, including children, and even adults. You're not allowed to have any other type of arrangement. And I decided that we needed to oppose this based on it was breaching the principle of consent. Like, you know, we should be able to have free speech between consenting adults and negotiation and a number of other things. So I opposed that, which was quite hard because not many other members of parliament did oppose it because there was a lot of pressure from activists and stuff like this. You would have seen what it's like. Mm-hmm. We stood up and opposed it. What's it like being a member of parliament? Is it letters, social media pressure? Is it people coming and banging on your office? How does it work? Yeah, like in lots of different ways. Yeah, so people will contact your office. You know, we often meet with stakeholder groups and constituents, mm-hmm. but sometimes the pressure's on social media. Sometimes they're looking, you know, especially in something like this, they were looking for bad guys that they can frame, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know. So if you say something silly, then, you know, they're going to go out of their way to try and make you look like a clown. But anyway, we opposed that and it was fine in the end. And actually, I feel like my views on this have only hardened and I'm 100% certain that I made the right decision opposing that. So what's happened since we've been in contact and monitoring this issue globally, as I know you guys have as well. Mm -hmm. So one of the frustrations is that a lot of the families who have children that are in this situation can't talk out publicly because of their situation. They're worried about getting cancelled or they're they're in a vulnerable situation. But we were still getting lots of them contacting us with all these terrible stories. We were trying to place this in the media and stuff like that. And we had a big breakthrough this year. We got a Channel 7 spotlight to run a documentary yeah. on it and that I was really it. It was great. Yeah, that's one of the first things that's broken through in the mainstream. More recently, I helped organise an event at Parliament where we got mm-hmm. a number of psychiatrists, doctors, lawyers and detransitioners to come and brief members of Parliament and tell like an alternative mm-hmm. view to what the government's mm-hmm. saying. No one from the government came to listen. They did have the chance though. They're all invited. I feel like the tide is turning. The media is not as scared to talk about it anymore. They used to be terrified of everything, especially with what's happening in the UK. I don't know if you've been monitoring that. Um, it's Tavistock. Yeah. So, but even more recently, like this week, Victoria was actually named in the UK parliament. They're not going to recognize our birth certificates in Victoria anymore because they reckon the rules for changing them, changing your sex on your birth certificate are too relaxed. 
and they're not going to recognise them along with a whole bunch of other countries and jurisdictions. Because and in Victoria you have self-ID for adults, don't you? Correct. So, so not related to children, but yeah. you have self-ID for adults. So that means that you could, as an adult male, go and change your birth certificate to say, Correct. wow. Yeah, you can just change it. And there's no requirements other than you need a like an affidavit from someone to confirm that it's legitimate. But mm -hmm. apart from that, you don't need anything. So Victoria is definitely the most, I don't want to use the term progressive because I don't think it's progressive, the most radical when it comes to gender ideology and it actually becoming law. And that's right. why you've got the Holly Lawford Smiths down there and this other sort of rad femme presence. Yeah, absolutely. It's very radical, but there's also a pushback against it, which I'm trying to help along. The thing that's going to change everything, I think, is the final version of the CAS review was mm -hmm. due out this month in the UK. The UK government has said only this week that it's been delayed until January because of complexity, is what they said. But if you watch what they're doing at the moment, they're frantically backtracking on just about everything to do with all of these trans issues. My suspicion is that they've actually read the report and they're worried about the impact of it and they're trying to position themselves for when it comes out early next year. I don't think that Australia's been paying attention to it, especially Victoria, and they're going to get ambushed. Now, you were at those infamous protests in March, right? Were they the Let Women Speak events yeah. that were sort of ambushed? Yeah, so I only went to, well, there was only one that I'm aware of. There was a protest in March. I knew it was happening, so I thought I'd go along. It's, no one would be surprised that I turn up to protests all the time for all sorts of things. I want to see things with my own eyes because I don't mm -hmm. trust what the government says about stuff and I don't trust the media. And the only way to really see what's going on is to be there. And so I was just hanging there and watching and effectively there was a group of women who were trying to tell stories, you know, a few hundred of them mm -hmm. with some of their supporters. And then across the road, there was like this sort of, phalanx of trans activists trying to shout them down and tell them to shut up. And then down the road, there was another group of Marxists waving red flags and stuff. Just to top it off, a group of, I don't know, about a dozen or so guys, might have been about 20 guys dressed in black, just rocked up. No one knew who they were. I certainly didn't. They were wearing bucket hats. You've seen all the pictures. Yeah. And then, then they unfurled this banner with a nasty sign and started doing the Nazi salute, which <laughs> I didn't actually see the Nazi salute. I was down the other end. I was actually on my way out by then, but yeah. And then the media and some trans activists tried to pin this on the radical feminists or the gender critical feminists, right? Yeah, yeah. So one of the slogans that they were yelling out is, you know, you can't run, you can't hide, you've got Nazis on your side. I note that they've stopped that now since the Middle Eastern conflict. They were trying to basically mm -hmm. frame these women and they framed Moira Deeming and, and a bunch of other women. Mm -hmm. And notably, it's only women that they seem to go after. And no one yeah. tried to frame me, which I thought was, I was expecting it, but it didn't happen. They seem to just go after women. A lot yeah. of people bought it. Some of the media bought it. Moira's mm -hmm. own party kicked her mm -hmm. out of the parliamentary wing of their party. It was pretty full on. So what are your thoughts on offensive actions like that, you know, symbols, doing the Nazi salute, the swastika, things like that? Well, I mean, they're gross and offensive, but mm -hmm. the, the question for me isn't whether they're gross or offensive. The question is should they be illegal? Mm -hmm. And I've argued for a long time now, and I argued recently when I opposed banning the Nazi salute, which only went through this term, that they're effectively creating a situation where 
they can create martyrs. They're giving these people far more attention than I think they deserve. In fact, like, you know, these national socialists that they call themselves, I doubt that there's more than 100 of them in the state. There's very small numbers of people. They're just idiots. To pay them this much attention, you know, to actually like draft laws and potentially create a martyr. Even I didn't expect, though, that only six days after the law passed, one of these guys did it out the front of a courthouse and he just faced court again today. He's been charged and he's totally unrepentant. So, yeah, I just think they're really counterproductive. So I assume you'd be against shutting down protests like the ones we saw in the Opera House. We saw in March, I think only a few days after the Hamas attacks on Israel. I live in Sydney. I live in a very big Jewish community and everyone was told, you know, don't go into the CBD that day. You know, I sort of see two sides of it. Obviously, you know, Jews in Sydney or around the world were very upset about that. Like, why do we have to stay at home? We should, you know, feel safe to go into the city. We should be able to go anywhere we want. And we're not the people who attacked on October 7th. So we were the ones who were attacked, you know. But at the same time, maybe there was a genuine safety concern and there were people screaming gas the Jews and there were some very aggressive people at this march. So I don't know, what would you have done if you were the Premier of New South Wales or the Police Commissioner? Look, I don't think that we should be shutting down protests, even if they are offensive and horrific. I mean, mm-hmm. for, for libertarians, the normally the line is where you engage in threats or actual violence. That's where you're crossing a line because you're actually intimidating people or hurting people, and that should be stopped. But the act of protesting in a particular cause, once you have the government deciding which causes are legitimate and which ones are not, you're going down a very, very dangerous road. So I think if people want to protest and say disgusting things, then call it out. We want more speech, not shutting down speech. And frankly, you know, we should know who these people are who want to say these sorts of things. And they should face the social consequences when they say horrible things like that. And I'm not talking legal consequences. Like I don't want to associate with people like that. And lots of people don't Mm -hmm. want to associate with people like that. Mm -hmm. And so if they want to make those sorts of statements, then people should exercise their freedom of association and not deal with them. Yeah, I agree. I like my Nazis where I can see them. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Better there than in the shadows doing God knows what. No. Definitely. Okay. So you're a libertarian. We were talking about self-ID before. Isn't the libertarian stance that if you decide that you're a woman today, you're a woman? Well, there's two things here. Like Mm -hmm. people can identify and call themselves whatever they want. And Mm -hmm. I don't have a problem with that. Mm -hmm. The problem is compelling others to Mm -hmm. believe that. So you have two problems here. You have people can present however they want, and I have no problem with people who won't present however they want, right? That's Mm -hmm. fine. The real issue is when you try and compel others to acknowledge certain things or when you get conflicts of rights. And this is the thing that got me thinking at the Let Women Speak rally, what libertarians weren't really engaged on this issue. And I tried to be trying to encourage libertarians to engage on it because what I actually see is a clash of rights, right? So when the women were talking about women's spaces, actually they just want to exercise their right to freedom of association. When they want to speak about issues and not get shut down, we're talking about freedom of speech issues. And when we're talking about attacking someone or using the law to stop someone because they speak in a way that you don't want, that's, you know, we're talking about compelled speech then. And this is where rights are actually being violated is through those compulsions. But, you know, if someone wants to call themselves something and then it's up to me to choose whether or not I want to play along with that or not. And if people don't want to play along with that, they shouldn't be forced to. 
What about with official documents, things like that? Well, on the self-ID thing, I mean, it depends what it's actually for. I mean, I don't even like the idea of having a central registry run mm -hmm. by the government. Mm -hmm. Incidentally, we didn't heavily oppose that when it went through. It was in 2019 before I'd really engaged on these issues. I'd probably think about it a lot differently now after engaging on this. You know, if a document is meant to show someone's biological sex and it doesn't, then that's problematic. It means the document's in error, effectively. And I think that, you know, the justifications given for changing the birth certificates like this, they're saying, well, people can travel and stuff like that and not be outed unnecessarily. Well, as it's turned out, the UK now won't recognise them. So, you know, mm. it's, its utility is a lot less than what they're promising. And I expect many other countries are probably going to do the same thing. So you're against... How did you describe it? A centralised well, database? Well, government, re government repository. Okay. How do we get important info just through censuses and stuff? I, I suppose you're not against the census. Maybe you are. Oh, well, that's a whole other thing. <laughs> <laughs> the births, deaths and marriages always been a records office and its main utility in the past has been around, you know, proving someone's identity, mm -hmm. proving that you're married, People use it for research as well, for, mm -hmm. you know, researching genealogy. But it wasn't always done by the government, actually. Like it used to be done by parishes who used to register marriages and births and things. So it's not something that necessarily has to be done by the government, I don't think. And I think mm -hmm. that there's lots of problems when the government starts bringing, you know, ideology into it, like what they've done here, and lessening the value of it. And mm -hmm. that was one of the concerns that we had at, at the time. Is like, how is anyone researching like genealogical records going to be able to make sense of it in the future that was an issue that we were worried about at the time yeah marriage is only fairly recently something that the government i think the even in australia i'd have to check i think it's like in only in the 1950s we brought in the marriage act but historically it was just done as a private contract in a church or synagogue or whatever your religion is or, or some people you know don't need to do it through a church and they would just say we have a private contract and we're married and you know the idea that the government needs to approve that is a fairly new thing the big one that was taken over by government that lots of people don't realize especially in australia is welfare welfare used to be a private sector activity we've only had the welfare state since the great depression really in australia before that we used to have friendly society and effectively you would join a friendly society, usually as part of your work, but people could do it, you know, outside of that as well. But often they're aligned with your trade and you would pay a fee and then that would effectively cover you for insurance and unemployment even. And usually what happened is that though the, the funds were decentralized to local areas. And so if you became unemployed, then all the other members of that fund would have an incentive to try and help you get another job because they were having to pay your unemployment benefits. But they used to employ their own doctors. So they'd have doctors that would look after their members. So they get free healthcare effectively. And all of that was done privately before the Great Depression. Then we had these big changes. But then what happened is that these friendly societies morphed into other organizations. And you see it now, a lot of them morphed into health insurance companies. Some of them morphed into superannuation companies. And so a lot of the companies that you have today originally were those friendly societies, companies like AMP, National Mutual, like all of these originally were friendly societies. And a lot of them survived and just evolved into different types of companies after the expansion of the welfare state. I think that it was really sad that the government crowded out that entire friendly society movement. Mm -hmm. 
a lot of people don't realise that Australia was actually leading the world in, in this type of private sector welfare and it was very successful in Australia. Lots of you know people who were members of these societies got excellent benefits. They were looked after if a husband died the wife would get money from the friendly society. She would, you know, wouldn't be destitute. You know, for the time, there was some pretty advanced thinking. But then once the government came in, they have sort of had to evolve and they did evolve and many of them are still around. What about other services like, you know, firefighting roads, all that? Like I was just in DC and I did a historic tour of Georgetown which is beautiful. And the tour guide pointed out these symbols on the old houses there, and they were symbols that the firefighters would use to see whether the person who owns that house had paid to become a member of this group, you know, that had fire insurance, essentially. But all the houses are stuck together. So, you know, if your house is burning down, you have insurance, but your neighbor doesn't, then everyone's house gets burned down in the end. So what do you think about that? Well, most of the fire service, well, in the rural fire service, they used to be the CFA. It's all run by volunteers still. And I think New South Wales is pretty much the same. So they're not employees of the government. They do get government funding for trucks and organisation and training and stuff. But um, they're actually volunteer organisations for rural fires. I think in New South Wales, it's a rural fire service. I mean, there's lots of things. If you look at ambulance services, for example, in Victoria, we have already have large numbers of private ambulance services, like they use them for patient transport and this sort of thing. We also have a subscription scheme. So an ambulance service isn't free in Victoria. Lots of people believe that it is. They'll send you a bill if you ride in an ambulance, a very, very expensive bill, actually, mm -hmm. if you're not a subscriber. So it's actually not that far off a private system already. Like you can totally imagine if you converted that to a private competitive system, would it be a lot different? I'm not actually sure it would be a lot different. You would still have to pay a bill if you take the ambulance like you do now. If you wanted to avoid that bill, you'd still have to pay an insurance fee. And we do have private firefighting services as well. Airports use them, I think. So they're not all government operated either. So are you pretty much for privatising everything? Is there anything that you wouldn't privatise? The military for a start. Look, this, okay. I mean, people talk about like libertarian ideas as if it's an ideal state. Actually, the mm -hmm. way that I think about it is a direction, right? And someone needs to be there questioning the size of government and whether it's actually necessary for the government to continue growing. And I think that there's a lot of people out there that think that maybe the government's gotten too big right now and maybe we need the government to not be doing some of the things that it's doing now because it's starting to impact on people's lives. And those people that want it to be smaller, I consider them allies, right? And maybe we get off the bus at different points, right? But mm -hmm. <laughs> basically, people who think that the government is infringing on their life and infringing on their rights, it's our job to speak out and say, maybe the government doesn't need to be doing that. Maybe they don't need to be making these laws to criminalise people because they're doing things that aren't necessarily harming anyone else. I listened to a, pod a podcast in which you were talking about how you came to be a libertarian and that you read Robert Nozick. And yeah. look, to be fair, I haven't read him. Maybe if I, if I did, I'd become a libertarian. But I don't know if it's a temperament thing, but I'm sort of okay with being controlled to some extent, I believe. Like I put a lot of trust in the government. My parents are both, you know, public servants. Well, they were teachers, public school teachers. Is there some book that would red pill me on this issue? My favourite one, as I've said many times, is The Road to Serfdom by Hayek. He talks about the problems with government is that 
you have these internal markets within government. People often talk about markets externally, but within government, you have these problems with information and communication. And that's mm -hmm. why very often governments make really bad decisions mm -hmm. is because they're sort of internalized. But if you look at it in a more fundamental view, and this is the thing that Nozick wrote about that actually convinced me that I wasn't a socialist anymore, was he spoke about the idea of just transactions and how justice mm -hmm. arises from consent. And he made the case that if two people are consensually exchanging ideas or services or goods or whatever it might be, that there is justice in that. You know, even right now we're exchanging words and ideas and this is like a, a consensual transaction that benefits both parties, right? And if you scale that up like a radical sort of consent model, then effectively what you end up with is the way that libertarians think about things is we think very carefully about consent and what consent actually means and the justice of having that consent. And where we choose to fight against things is where we see people being harmed through lack of consent. And government itself infringes on people's consent all the time. And this is what we push back against. But you can give consent to be ruled, right? Like I'm not an expert in anything really, <laughs> maybe podcasting, I'm getting that. But, you know, like energy and medicine and, you know, obviously the COVID restrictions were a big cause of debate, especially in Victoria. And I know you've talked a lot about it and, you know, people have a lot of issues with Quillette and Quillette's position on COVID as well. But I guess the idea is that how can we as lay people, you know, there aren't enough hours in the day, I would argue, to be so informed about immunology and nuclear energy and everything. I want to say, look, I trust you. You're a nuclear physicist or you're an immunologist. What should we do here? For sure. I, I get what you're saying. People have specialities and knowledge and things like this. But what people don't get is that the idea that government can make decisions about your life better than you is wrong. They just can't do that. I believe that the person that's best to make decisions about your life is you and not the government. The government doesn't have the information to do that. And you, know, you brought up COVID and these sorts of things. One of the problems with that was they couldn't make granular decisions. They can only make big blunt force type decisions, right? And so rather than trusting people to make their own decisions using good information, which some countries did, by the way, mm -hmm. they simply used the blunt instruments of, of coercion over the population. And that has consequences. It doesn't always end in a positive outcome. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, it's quite arguable whether we ended up getting any benefit out of it anyway. You know, I spoke about Japan a lot because, you know, I have connections to Japan and we we're watching very closely what they were doing. But their whole approach was radically different to us. Mm -hmm. They respected people's rights. They left a lot of the decisions up to individuals, either people or businesses. In the end, I think they had a much better, better outcome in terms of harm. What's the difference between coercion and incentive? You can still consent to an incentive, right? You can pay mm -hmm. someone to do something. One, you're using force and one, you're using a stick or a carrot, basically, is, what, mm. is the difference. Mm -hmm. yeah. Because when you were saying before that the only person who knows what's best for them is that individual, 
I don't know. I, I feel like I don't fully agree with that necessarily. I'm using a very out there example, like a heroin addict or some other sort of drug addict and you're not in a good position and maybe you have a, a newborn child or something like that. You've got a family to feed and you're at home and you're neglecting you know, your children or you're perhaps abusing your children. Like, I don't think that person knows what's best for them. And I think actually, you know, They're perhaps the government... Them. Yeah. So like if you're causing harm to other people, like you mentioned, mm. abusing people, then you've stepped into the realm of criminality. Mm. Mm. That's a very different thing. But mm -hmm. I mean, even like anyone who's got like substance abuse problems, mm -hmm. whatever it might be, ultimately it has to be their decision like to come out of that. Forcing people doesn't work. Like and anyone that works in the alcohol and drug sector will tell you that, that, you know, forcing someone into rehab is never more than a temporary thing. Ultimately, it has to be the decision of the individual to make a change in their life and people can help them with that. But ultimately, that has to be the decision of the individual. So on the on the topic of drugs, I know you've been tweeting a lot about cannabis, decriminalization. Mm. I don't support decriminalization. I support legalization. For anyone watching, decriminalization means that you just don't get arrested if you're possessing mm -hmm. it. Legalization means that it should be available to trade mm -hmm. like in new york i was just in new york and you can go to weed shops and buy weed and paraphernalia and yeah so you know there's different models throughout the world you know canada's got one model various u.s jurisdictions have got all different types of mm -hmm. models and you've had the netherlands for years so there's lots of different models we believe that mm -hmm. adults should be able to make their own choices we don't condone or promote the use of cannabis but we don't think it's something where the government should be stepping in and criminalizing people because they choose to smoke a plant that the government doesn't approve of. In fact, the most harmful thing from cannabis consumption is getting a criminal record. So I think in the case of cannabis, it's quite clear that to me anyway, the harms of prohibition don't lessen the harm of cannabis. Harm does exist from cannabis, but prohibition just makes it worse and incentivizes organized crime. We've got a terrible organized yeah. crime problem in Victoria. It's out of control. Cannabis is one of their big markets. I'd rather have a legal regulated market for adults that eliminates those organized crime elements because they won't be able to compete with it. My only concern just from seeing it in the States is that there did seem to be homeless people or sort of mentally ill people who were sort of talking to themselves on the street and also were smoking a joint. And I was like, I don't think weed's probably a great choice for you right now, but that's me not being a libertarian, I suppose. I think I know better, but I think for people with schizophrenia, it's not, doesn't tend to be a great idea to smoke weed. But. Yeah. I mean, like I say, I don't deny that it causes harm. Mm -hmm. It does mm -hmm. cause harm for some people. Mm -hmm. There's some people who've got mental health conditions that it can exacerbate their problems. It can make people lazy, you know, a lesser mm -hmm. harm, but it's still a harm. Mm -hmm. Fat. Yeah, it can make <laughs> eat too many chips and watch too much Netflix. But mm -hmm. making it illegal doesn't stop any of the, those things, doesn't make any of those things go away. Like the idea mm -hmm. in Victoria that legalising it is suddenly going to have this like army of people who never tried weed because it was illegal. They've been waiting their whole life and they can't get access to it now. And then suddenly they're going to get access and it's going to change everything. I, like, you know, I don't know a single person who wants to get access to weed that can't. We've got one of the highest consumption rates in the world in Victoria. Prohibition has has not worked. And that explains a lot. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe we need it. I don't know. <laughs> I guess, though, for example, with vapes, I wasn't a smoker, but now that vapes are pretty available, like 
yeah, I'll I'll enjoy a chuff on the weekend. They're actually quite good. They're not well, legal yeah. at all. If you've had a vape, it's been supplied by organized crime. It's not it's not a regulated market at all. Mm. The only legal market for vapes at the moment, you have to get a prescription for one. Mm. And you have to go to a chemist. There's only about three different brands that you can get. I think something like 95% of the market is supplied by organized crime. So whatever, mm. and with these new federal laws that they've brought in, actually going out and having a vape on the street, you can go to jail for two years. And there's a guy that's just been charged in WA. I was speaking about it recently. So this is like a really serious thing. So all those people that you see vaping, that is not because mm. we've had some legal market. It's it's amazing how many people don't even realize that it's illegal. It's totally illegal, supplied by organized crime. Most of it's coming in from China and uh, totally unregulated. I just think that if they were legalized, you know, I'd vape even more because it would be even easier for me to get one. Because a lot of the time it's you go into a 7-Eleven and you can't, you know, it's like getting weed in Nimbin. It's like, do you have, you know, and they're like, you know, you have to be really coy about it. It's a pretty low barrier, though, really. Like, you can pretty much yeah. buy it anywhere in Victoria. I'm not sure about New South Wales, but just about any sort of tobacconist or, you know, tobacconists and different grocers mm. and $2 mm. shops and all those places, they all sell them. Okay, a few more topics I mm. want to talk about. So, Javier Millet, very interesting character. I saw, I think, the Victorian Libertarian Party tweeted something in support of him, I believe. Yeah, well... Yeah. He's the first libertarian president that's ever been elected anywhere. So Argentina has undergone a very long period of falling apart under socialism, basically. Mm-hmm. They've had price yeah. controls and they've gotten to the point where something like 40% of the population is in poverty. They used to be, you know, very rich country. They've got lots of natural resources, beautiful country. They've got a long culture and history and this sort of thing. But they let socialism take control and it just got worse and worse and worse and worse until the point now where they're in dire poverty, price controls, all that sort of stuff. And Malay got elected, I think he got elected in 2021 on a a minor party and then he just went crazy in the media talking about how he wants to shut down parts of government. And uh, I love that video of him going... Sweater, yeah, sweater. just ripping it <laughs> off. Yeah, and he popularized yeah. the idea of shutting down large sections of the state, and uh, it appealed to people because they could see the corruption, they could mm-hmm. see how it was making their lives worse, and they want to try something new and radical. And you know, he's new and radical, and mm-hmm. elected him. So it's actually a really interesting thing. So we've been watching very, very carefully, and libertarians all around the world were really excited when he got elected, but we'll wait yeah. and see what happens. But he's saying all the right things so far. Yeah, I'm I'm excited to see how this experiment unfolds. Yeah. And as other people have said, it can't get much worse than, you know, how it's already been in Argentina. And he seems to actually be very well read in economic theory. He's a professor of economics, so... Yeah, he knows what he's talking about mm. with the numbers. Whether he'll be able to implement any mm. of that is another mm. matter. But have you heard his stance on abortion? You know, because you'd assume, you know, libertarians must be pro pro choice, you know, it's a woman's choice. But his idea is that because it's already a separate human being living inside the woman, that actually it's taking away the choice of that baby to live. What do you think about that? There's actually a lot of different positions on this from libertarians, and I acknowledge that there's different positions to mind that are coherent. I'm not intimately familiar with his position, although I know that Mm -hmm. he's against it, but I'm not. It sort of depends on 
the way you think about it. The way, yeah. the way that I think about it is a, a woman should have control over her own body. One of our fundamental beliefs is we believe in property rights and the most fundamental bit of property is your own body. Okay. And so we don't want the state involved in that. That said, we don't think that people should be penalised if people want to discourage people to do it or don't like it or whatever. That's fine as well. They have free speech, but we don't want the state getting involved in criminalising people. That's my personal view. That's not the party's mm -hmm. view. The party is neutral on it and allows a conscience vote on it. Okay. And last topic I wanted to discuss today is nuclear energy. I saw a speech of yours in Parliament from like three years ago. You were saying that you used to be anti-nuclear, so was I. People still scoff at it. I think in that recording, other members of parliament were sort of scoffing at you, which I thought was quite rude, but I guess you get used to that. Well, they do that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> do you think it will be something we see within our lifetime, the end of the moratorium on nuclear energy? It's hard to know. I've mm -hmm. definitely seen movement. As I probably said in that speech you're watching, it's been a long <laughs> journey for me. I actually organised... In 2019, you know, just after I got elected, we organised the first pro-nuclear rally in Australian history wow. in Melbourne, which was great. That was in October 2019. Mm -hmm. And that year, I also got up an inquiry into nuclear prohibition in Victoria. We've got mm -hmm. this special ban in Victoria that prohibits not just nuclear reactors, but prohibits everything to do with the nuclear fuel cycle, which has come and really? been, Yeah, we instituted that way back in 1983. And it's sort of come... So you have no Lucas Heights you know for medical no. purposes well, no. No, we allow nuclear materials for medical purposes, oh, okay. but nothing else so that's actually the reason it, it came and bit us in the bum recently with this nuclear sub deal nothing's mm -hmm. going to come and get serviced in victoria obviously because we don't allow anything like that i also only recently introduced a private members bill and debated it to repeal the prohibition in victoria and it was an interesting debate because We've gotten to the point now where if you look at the recent polls, the majority of Australians either support or are pretty okay with nuclear power. Mm -hmm. And even the Especially younger generations. Yeah, younger mm -hmm. people. Well, they didn't have the sort of Cold War. Fear-mongering, yeah. Yeah, fear-mongering about nuclear mm -hmm. stuff that older people sort of my age probably did. And, mm -hmm. um, yeah, the opposition supported it. So that was a big change. And they did so without any particular negative consequences like Labor was trying to whip up this scare campaign and I just told them straight up I said well you know Labor's out of touch here because the majority of people are pretty cool with it especially younger people they're totally fine with it in fact a lot of people who are you know pushing for action on climate change they're starting to wonder why the hell are these countries like France mm -hmm. Sweden Ontario in Canada why are these jurisdictions that already have very low carbon emissions in their energy grid why aren't we just doing what they're doing? And a lot of people are questioning that and they should be questioning it because like what we're doing with renewables is actually an experiment. Like no one's really done it. He's done it before, no one's yeah. achieved it. But they've done it with yeah. nuclear, but they've never done it with just renewables. Hmm. Okay. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about today? Probably lots of things, but I don't want to make the <laughs> podcast go too long. <laughs> oh, I want to know, how did you come across Quillet? I'd been following what Claire's been doing for years, I think. When was it founded? I th it was well before About I got elected. 2015. Yeah. Yeah. I'd been following it for years and reading some of their articles. And um, yeah, I heard about it. I thought it was an interesting idea. I quite enjoyed many of the articles I'd read. And so, yeah, I'd been following it for years. So, yeah, I'm really happy to get on one of your podcasts now. So <laughs> that's really good. It's great to have you. You're the first member of parliament that I've had, first politician, I oh, believe. Okay. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Hopefully speak to you again soon. All right. Thanks for having me.